Welcome back to another edition of Clover and Nets. My name is Eli Lerman. And I am Luke Rep. And here's the latest. The Nuggets take game one against the Lakers. The Heat steal game one in Boston. Uh, multiple proven playoff level coaches have been fired around the league. Doc Rivers, Monty Williams, Mike Budenholzer, Nick Nurse. Uh, John Morant is unfortunately back in headlines with more controversy. The Spurs land the number one pick in the draft, followed by Charlotte at two and Portland at three. And James Harden declines his $35.6 million player option to becoming free agents. So we have a lot to cover and not a lot of time, so we're going to hop right in. The Nuggets take down the Lakers in Game 1, 132-126. Luke, what did you see in Game 1 from the Lakers and Nuggets? This game was, at first, seemed like a one-sided affair, but over the course of time, you kind of you kind of saw what you and I kind of thought uh, going back to episode one where we thought it's going to be a close one it might be a game seven series uh in the first half it was it was really just like a, a Nikola Jokic show Anthony Davis just couldn't hold the dude and um there's times where he just wouldn't even try to hold the guy and we saw that I mean he he might have had I think yeah he had a triple double a nearly a triple double by halftime I know he hit it by the third quarter for sure um it was just an explosion it was an explosion of offense from denver i mean they dropped 132 total lakers obviously not too far behind them at 126 but they just got off um just they just got off early with their shots i think that first quarter really was the difference of the game honestly i forget i forget how the first quarter went 22 to 9 start against the lakers you it's i mean that's such a big hole to come out of and um I think that was really the difference of the game. We saw we saw in the second half of the game, LA started to really find their, their shooting again. They got into a good rhythm defensively. Things were going better, but it was just too much too much catch up for them, and um, Denver made them pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if anything, this just prove this game just proves how fun this series is going to be. I think every game is going to be really close. Um, you know. 22 to 9 start Lakers lost by six points it, it really just it doesn't mean anything I don't think I think this is just another it's just a reflection of how the rest of the series is gonna go um, both teams shot very well from the field Nuggets shooting 55% from the field Lakers shooting 54 and then the Nuggets shot 46 from three and the Lakers shot 45 so it was insanely close and the Nuggets were unbelievably efficient in their starting lineup um, you know, obviously Jokic 34, 21 and 14, Jamal Murray 31, 5 and 5, uh, KCP, MPJ and Aaron Gordon all finished in double figures. So all five guys in their starting lineup, uh, finished with above 10 points. Uh, the main difference was obviously rebounding 47 to 30 rebound advantage for the Nuggets. And it, it, it's too, it's too little too late, even though it was in the first quarter right uh obviously the lakers made some adjustments i think that rui hachimura for a good six minutes was on Jokic and held him to like two points so they they liked what they saw there but at the end of the day you know darvin ham had a really good quote after the game he said i don't think you can shut down any one aspect of his game and expect to be okay obviously talking about Jokic, which is mm -hmm. so true we talked about it a little bit you know with joel Embiid, you can double and rely on him not to make the perfect play or the right play every single time out of it Jokic makes that play every single time without fail. Uh, so there's really nothing you can do to contain him, right? We talked about it. It's going to be uh, Jokic's skill versus AD's will. 
and Jokic's skill put Denver over the top in this game. Obviously, AD had 40 and 10, which is a ridiculous game. But, uh, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, AD's defense wasn't really there. You know, sagging on Jokic, not playing tight mm -hmm. on screens, uh, and obviously getting absolutely manhandled down low on the boards. Um, but yeah, we, we also saw it a little bit with the Celtics. We'll talk about that later. But, you know, Robert Williams on Bam Adebayo playing basically drop coverage even when Bam had the ball. It was it was interesting to see AD do that as well. Obviously, it did not work. Um, you know, also the Lakers had their fair share of struggle, struggles. Uh, Dennis Schroeder and D'Angelo Russell combined 14 points on 6 for 14 shooting, which is obviously very poor. D'Lo should be scoring 15, 14 points minimum on his own every night for the Lakers to win games. Um, and, you know, Dennis Schroeder only shot two... Uh, three shots he was two for three and that, that i don't think that that's a recipe for success regardless of dennis schroeder being a really good score or not i don't think they're gonna win with him taking three shots in the starting lineup one thing that i think like is very important to highlight here is the um the glass in this in this denver lakers game i think that was as you brought up before um was definitely the difference of the game 100 percent. the amount of rebounds that the Denver Nuggets got, especially offensive rebounds. I mean, those are just extra plays that you cannot afford to have with a team like Denver. Um, and like, as you said before, too, with Jokic, he's going to find the man. Like, even if you play superb defense on him, he's going to find the man. He's going to find the guy that is open. And like I said in episode one, I remember we were talking about X-Factors. I said um, my X-Factor for Denver was MPJ. And... Like, like, just like I thought, he was going to get his open looks, and and he made them. That was the difference. That was a big difference. Um, I forget how many total points he had, but uh, it felt sure, like every open sure shot he got scored like around 15, 16 points. But I'll double yeah. check that real, real quick. Yeah, MPJ had fifteen points, fifteen points and ten rebounds. Yeah, I mean, it felt like every open catch and shoot shot he got um, off a pass, he made it, and. Yeah that that's the that's the scary part about denver yeah you know he obviously he has all these nicknames in the media you know michael never swing the rock porter uh, <laughs> you know he is really mm -hmm. a black hole but it's what denver needs him to be because whenever he catches the ball from Jokic, it's a good catch it's a perfect pass perfectly placed for him to shoot right and he knocks down the shots he consistently knocks down the shots um he provides so much offense for them he, he, i mean you know not the best defender in the world. I don't think it's a lack of skill or athleticism. I think it's a completely an effort thing. But, mm. uh, you know, he did what he had to do. And, you know, 10 rebounds for Michael Porter Jr. is a very good contribution. He averages 5.5 on the season. So essentially doubling his rebound average in game one was was huge for them. Right? That's, that's the difference right there. That's the difference. Totally. And, uh, you know, outside of that, everything was even, right? Uh, Nuggets started 22-9, and the Lakers actually won the rest of the game. They outscored Denver for the rest of the game, but not enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's... it's With a team like Denver that's so powerful offensively, you can't rely on them slowing down, even if you really pick up your defense, Right? When you let someone get into a rhythm like that at the start of the game, it's hard to keep them out of it. It's really hard to keep them out of it. Uh, and unfortunately, the Lakers couldn't keep them out of it. Obviously, you know, LeBron with 26, 12, and 9. Big game from him. Austin Reeves with 23 and 8. 
uh, and then Rui was 17 off the bench, but it wasn't enough, right? You look at the Nuggets starting five, everybody's in double figures. The Lakers had three guys in double figures in their starting lineup. And like I said, you know, 14 points from Dennis Schroeder and D'Lo. It's not, it's not a recipe for success. So obviously Denver goes up 1-0. I think that the, I don't know about you, but I think that the Lakers are going to win game two in Denver and it's going to be 1-1 going at the, uh, is it Staples or is it Crypto now? I always forget. Uh, yeah, they changed the crypto. Yeah, crypto. Yeah, season. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So I don't know about you. I got the Lakers winning game too. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, they were, they headed the right direction in terms of how they played towards the second half of the game. So I could definitely see that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on the heat come into Boston and beat my boys stealing game one. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously playoff Jimmy with 35, seven and five with six deals. Two huge ones coming off of Jason Tatum's unfortunate late-game turnovers. Uh, you know, both of our X-Factors for the Heat, Bam Adebayo, being aggressive. He had 20 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists on 9 for 13 shooting, so incredibly efficient. Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry, Max Trust, Caleb Martin, all scoring 15 apiece. Uh, obviously, they shot the lights out, and the Heat won the rebounds battle. Uh, you know, I think I brought it up in the last episode. I said Gabe Vincent is incredibly average or below average against everybody else except the Celtics. And he was two for 17 from three against New York. And in game one, he goes three for five, scoring 15 points against the Celtics. Uh, And then obviously on the Celtics side, Tatum scores 30, uh, seven rebounds, seven assists. Robert Williams with 14 and seven. Marcus Smart with 11 points, 13 assists. Jalen Brown with 22 and nine. Brogdon with 19 off the bench. White with 11 off the bench. And then shot well from the field, not as good from three. Um, and yeah, you know, it, what it came down to was that third quarter. The Celtics gave the Heat a massive third quarter. I think it was 48 to 25 or something crazy like that, the scoring differential. Uh, you know, and again, it's a question of how bad do they really want it? And also, obviously, you know, there's an argument to be made about coaching, not calling a single timeout for, during that Miami run. Uh, but yeah, what did you see in this game? So first half... It looked it looked like uh, Boston was taking care of business uh, pretty well. I, I I going into the second half, I thought honestly thought that Boston was going to take it. Uh, but like you like you said, third half comes around and things completely change. Yeah, forty six to twenty five point uh, quarter for for Miami over in favor over uh, Boston, and it just they seem they just seem to completely lose it. Like in the first half, I saw I saw Boston running a lot of taller lineups, and it was working. They were getting past the the just naturally small Miami defenders, and I was like, oh, they can't, they just can't protect it. Like even if Bam is on his A game down there, I mean, they can't, he can't help on every single on every single collapse. So I was like, oh, well, it's gonna be a rough, gonna be a rough night in serious form. Second half comes around, they're keeping the Boston players, a lot of them, on the perimeter. And they're making them force a lot of jump shots, which is always obviously better. It's a lower percentage shot. I'm like, oh, okay. They're getting stops, which is good. Um, we're having rebounding issues like the Lakers. I was like, okay. And then Jimmy kind of went from, in a way, kind of, in my opinion, kind of cruising in the first half to kind of turning on that switch. And we saw him get a lot more involved on the offense, getting his own and things like that. And when he started to get on, um, at the same time, obviously, is where you started to see a lot more of that defense kind of draw to him. And we got we got to see the Miami offense kind of really just opened up. 
if Jimmy was getting double teamed like that, Jimmy was finding the guy. His teammates are making the extra pass around, you know, swinging the ball around. And they're getting the open shots. And people like Vincent, Kyle Lowry, Struess did a great job. Um, Kyle Lowry was, I believe it was in the second quarter, kind of kept things afloat when Jimmy was out, uh, just getting some time off to, to rest in between his time, playing time. Right, right. And he came in and made, felt like every jump shot in the second quarter and just kept them, kept them afloat, kept it from becoming like a, dis a disgusting outcome in the first half. Yeah. Um, and in terms of Jason Tatum, who I, I said was the X factor, I was definitely disappointed um, based on how they used him and how he played as well. They they weren't using him a lot of times in the offense down the stretch, especially in the fourth quarter when you need him to be used the most. You like you need to. There's no there's no question. There's no debate. And there's a lot of times where he just didn't get the ball. And like you said before, there just weren't timeouts being called in times where it should be used. And then eventually, I believe it was Van Gundy was on the game, and he said, like, how do you not, you need to, like, call a timeout here. You just went, like, five possessions in a row in the fourth quarter down the stretch without giving the ball to Tatum once at the play. So they finally called it. And then when he did get the ball, like you said before, he was turning the ball over. It was not good. He got, like, two up and downs, like, two travels, and it just wasn't, it wasn't ugly, or it wasn't pretty, I should say, for the Celtics. And I just think that sloppiness caught up to him, and that's what made Miami the victor. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, obviously Miami shot 54% from the field and 51% from three. I don't think that we can rely on Miami to shoot that well from three in another game this series. 51% uh, is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and then, you know, Joe Mazzulla, obviously, he's known for loving the three ball. Celtics only shot 29 threes, right? And they averaged 40 plus a game. Um, and yeah, you're, you're right. You know, we talked about the Joel Embiid treatment with Doc Rivers and the Sixers. Jason Tatum truly experienced that. And it's weird because that's usually not the case. Uh, he only took five shots the entire second half. And, you know, obviously the turnovers are tough. Um, that part, I think, is on him. But I also don't blame him for not being in rhythm after not touching the ball at all. Right? Mm. How can you expect sure. this guy to be in rhythm and make his shots and be super effective when he doesn't touch the ball, he doesn't even dribble the ball. There was like nine or 10 possessions where Reggie Miller is just like another possession where Jason Tatum didn't touch the ball. Another possession where Jason Tatum didn't the ball over and over. That's all I heard. I have my hands in my head listening to it because I'm just so frustrated. Um, You know, whether or not you want to agree or whoever's listening agrees, Jason Tatum is a top 10 player in the NBA. He is a superstar. The fact that he does not take at least 12 or more shots in the second half is baffling. That's what he should be taking. He should be taking anywhere in the playoffs from 25 to 30 shots a game. Right? That's what Embiid does. Or, well, did until Game 7, obviously. Jokic takes that many shots. AD takes that many shots. Right? Steph Curry took that many shots. There's no reason why he should not be taking that many shots. And, you know... You watch the plays. The Celtics are running their sets. You know, it's it's their it's their designated motion offense, and Tatum wasn't involved at all. They placed him in the middle of the floor, and he was just kind of standing there as a decoy the entire time. And it's it's it was ridiculous. Um, and then you know questions about Robert Williams' defense on Bam Adebayo last year completely shut him down when he was hobbling around. Uh, and you know, last night Bam had 18 in the first half, only two points in the second half, which is something I think that's 
you know, more realistic for this series. I don't think he's going to do a lot of scoring, but he made his mark and his presence was felt. Uh, mm -hmm. Robert Williams playing off of him, sagging off kind of like AD did against Jokic. And then obviously whenever the Celtics sent help, uh, Bam tore him apart by finding the right guy, right? And he's a big guard. That's what he does. So, you know, it's going to be on Rob Will to make that adjustment and which is press him, right? I think that he can stick with him laterally. I don't think that Bam is that much faster than him. Uh, they can jump. They can both jump out of the gym. I, I really am. I was really confused as to what the Celtics were doing with Bam specifically in the first half, giving him all that space. Um, some, some other stuff from the Celtics, you know, Grant Williams was a uh, DNP, didn't touch the floor. Uh, he's kind of fallen out of the rotation uh, towards the end of the year. He didn't play much against the Hawks. And I don't really see why. Uh, he was a legitimate contributor on the final team last year. He's been one of the best three-point shooters in the league this year. One of the best 3 and D guys in the league. Uh, you know, he seems perfect for this series, series to play on BAM, right? He was the primary defender last year against the Bucks when Al Horford was in foul trouble or was getting a break. Why would he not be in the same position with Bam this year? I don't I don't really get it uh, at all. So I think that that is going to continue to hurt the Celtics as long as he doesn't play on the floor. Uh, obviously, you know, Caleb Martin also went three for five from three, including two huge threes down the stretch. stretch. I don't expect Miami to shoot 51% from three. Um, I expect the Celtics to come back in game two and beat Miami and go into South Beach with a one-to-one -one series. I don't know. Uh, how do you feel about it? Well, I know last time we were, when we were predicting this series, uh, we both we both came to a pretty a pretty fair agreement that Boston was the, the better team. And there, there's no debate. And that's the thing. I think it's going to take games like this where Miami is just clicking and they take advantage of Boston's lack of um, adjustments. But if everyone's playing at their best and... Both coaches are doing what they need to do. There's no question to me that there's no question, like we said, that Boston takes this series. Um, like we said, like in five or six, I believe. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that happening. Uh, closer to six now because they already they already lost one. You right. know, yeah. factor in a potential you know hiccup game in the mix. But yeah, I, I I still think it makes sense. As much as I want Miami to win, I know you're completely the other way around. But no, I mean realistically, it makes sense yeah. that Boston's still the favorite. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one more thing about this. Uh, uh, last year, Celtics lost game one against the Heat in the conference finals. Came back, blew them out in game two. Uh, in the conference finals, lost game one to Milwaukee. One in game two, one in seven. Same thing against the Heat, one in seven. Uh, and then the year before, uh, two years before that, in the bubble, or a year before the Milwaukee stuff or whatever it was, they lost game one to the Heat as well. And then one in game two, Right. This is a common theme. We talked about the Celtics' lack of home court advantage. This is nothing new. So for all the people reacting to this game as if this is the series, it's not. And trust me when I say that the Celtics are going to win this series, right? Obviously, I'm a little biased because I'm a Celtics fan, but this is nothing new for them coming out slow. They lost to the Sixers this year in game one as well. This is nothing new. Uh, they're experienced, they know how to get around it, and I think that they will get around it, like like Luke and I have been saying. Uh, and then, the next thing we really wanted to talk about was the recent firing of coaches. Specifically, obviously, the four guys being Monty Williams, Nick Nurse, Nick Nurse, 
Mike Budenholzer, and Doc Rivers. Uh, you know, four coaches who I'd consider playoff solidified, playoff proven, who have just kind of become media scapegoats for what is really the players' issues. Or in Monty Williams' case, specifically a roster issue. In our first mm-hmm. episode, a big part of that was talking about the bench depth on the Suns, or just the depth in general. And there was none, right? Uh, he's not responsible for trading those pieces. That's a general manager and ownership decision, right? I'm sure he has a say in it, but I doubt that he was 100% on board with that. Uh, you know, they were just in the finals two years ago against the Bucks uh, with a roster, with a complete roster. They had bench depth in the, you know, including in the starting five, all five guys could really play and they didn't have Torrey Craig in there, you know. He knows what it takes, and I don't think that it's fair to fire someone uh, when it's not a result of his coaching, it's a result of the players and the roster, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Luke, but that's what I think. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, I brought up last episode, I think it's a big, I think it's a big, a, a big just case of the, the whole scapegoat thing that we've, we've seen in the last few years, and it, it's not even just in basketball, I think it's in a lot of sports. Um. Yeah, no, I I just don't get it. When it comes to money, like you said, just two two years ago, two years ago they were in the they were in the NBA Finals, and then they say, "Oh, we time to move on." Why? Why? Do not pick up on the differences, like from the perspective of the front office. Do not pick up and see the differences in your roster and and think, "Oh, maybe that's why." Like you said, he had nothing to do with them completely unloading every piece of depth they had around their core that they had, you know, going right before the deadline. So you get there and yeah, you have a great four, a nice core four, but then anytime a bench player comes in, then you want to sit one of your good starters. I mean, it's like, it's like, you're just not even playing. I mean, they can't score a bucket to save their life. I mean, and I, and they, they blame money for that. I don't get that. Nick Nurse, similar situation where his roster is completely depleted since their 2019 championship. Like, completely. Obviously, they couldn't really do much about Kawhi wanting to leave. But, I mean, still, they just never they never seemed to even try to build off what they had. And that, that team just, like I said, just, just depleted. And now they're they're firing, firing him because, I assume, because they're not happy with their, their record and, you know, their... Um, just quality of play as if that has any reflection on him and not the fact that the roster is just a complete far cry from what it used to be. Um, I, so I don't agree with that one. Mike Budenholzer, I think it's, I think it's worth noting just on the, on a personal level that during that series, when they were eliminated that I believe, uh, I think it was his brother. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it was his brother. Yeah. That, um, passed away. was ill and he passed away. I, I'm, I don't, you know. I don't. I don't want to even think about having to manage anything in my life while something like that is going on. Especially, I assume that this brother was young too, like around his age. Like, definitely not expecting to 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 pass away. So, thoughts and prayers to the Boonhoser family. Yeah, absolutely. On top of that, though, even with that aside, I still thought overall he still coached fairly well. Obviously, he was going up against Bolstra, who is a maestro with everything, every decision he makes. But I, I really think that the Bucks just didn't play well. I just think they got outplayed by me in that series. So I don't even hold that against Boonhoser. And then Doc Rivers, 
uh, right before we got on this, we were talking about it. He's just a, he's the type of guy that I feel like people there love or hate, you know, and it's just that's just how it is. I mean, he's been in the league for such a long time coaching and obviously as a player too, as a point guard. But I don't know. This this year, like when I was watching watching them in the playoffs, I mean, they, they essentially had a free ride in the first round. So there's nothing to really judge them on. I mean, they there's games where they people did have terrible games and they still won because they're playing a complete joke of a Brooklyn Nets team. Um, and they get into the second round. They get real competition. And then when the lights are the brightest in game seven, they they just fall. They come up short and you can't you can't blame Doc Rivers for his players not making shots like that, like especially superstars. It's not Doc's fault that James Harden and Embiid looked like a complete shell of themselves in game seven and throughout the series in different games. I, I just don't put that on Doc Rivers personally, but I understand overall there might be criticism with him throughout the years. Um, and I'm, I think it's been two seasons, give or take. With um with Philly, so I, maybe maybe it kind of just piles up, but specifically in that series, I don't I don't hold Doc accountable for that either. I just like I I told you, I'm just getting tired of the scapegoat sort of situation in sports where the front office doesn't want to take accountability. The front office doesn't want to hold players accountable because they feel that if they hold them accountable, they'll take that out on them and be upset and want out. So it's just it's a slippery slope, and I just hope that there's a resolution to that coming up because it's just not it's just not fair to these. Get these coaches yeah i agree you know the doc rivers situation is a little different you know uh unfortunately he does not have a good record in game seven he's six and ten in his career uh, and obviously mm -hmm. three second round exits from the playoffs hurts a lot with uh in three seasons with the sixers but you know i i yeah you're right it's it's not fair to the coaches right uh, specifically coaches that are already proven it just it's not fair uh and also you know back to the mike Budenholzer situation Milwaukee didn't play with a fully healthy team. Or Milwaukee, mm -hmm. like, you know, Giannis, we talked about it last time. Giannis played in, whatever, three of the games, right? Three of them, like, total, all the way through. I think so. And then, yeah, And yeah. he, obviously, he, he, you know, he probably averaged 25 and 10 through those games, which seems like very good stats. But for playoff Giannis, that's much below his scoring average. And it was obvious watching him move around that he was not healthy you know not putting pressure on certain parts of his body avoiding certain physical certain physicality uh and which he never usually never does usually he just puts his head down and bowls through people in the paint and gets rewarded for it which is a whole other conversation but you know again i think that miami wins that series in four or five games if they're healthy uh th but that's that's just me right and i still think that they could have won that series with Giannis uh, not being healthy, you know, some 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 calls didn't go their way, whatever it is. Uh, you, but here we are, right? Uh, mm -hmm. All of these guys will most likely get jobs somewhere, most likely. Doc Rivers is oh, yeah. the one that I question the most about getting picked up again, at least as a head coach. He might have to spend a few years in a, as an assistant or a year as an assistant before inevitably another team fires their coach. But, you know, uh, Monty Williams, Nick Nurse, Mikey B, I think they'll find homes. They're good coaches solidified uh they'll find homes the one question with nick nurse on the raptors was his player relationships uh i know pascal siakam and him had had, had their fair share of issues since 2019 and i know fred van vliet and him had also had their fair share of issues and i also know that one of the assistant coaches that on the raptors roster fred van vliet and him absolutely hated each other got in multiple like uh vocal altercations so 
that's also something to think about. But, you know, those guys will find homes. Doc Rivers is the one question mark. Uh, that's at least that's what I think. I think that makes I understand sense. that. Yeah, yeah no, I, he definitely has the most baggage and, you know, the worst the worst experience and uh, record, like you said, in the playoffs. Definitely, definitely understandable from from his perspective. The other ones, though, definitely questionable. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this next segment, uh, Luke and I were debating, talking about, uh, just because we don't want to, you know, stir up anything or cause any issues, but we decided that we probably should talk about it, uh, and it is the John Moran situation. So, you know, a few days ago, obviously, uh, same thing happened earlier in the season. John Morant was seen again on Instagram Live flashing a gun recorded by one of his friends. And, you know, obviously the NBA, I believe, delivered a suspension and Memphis is also investigating uh, the same way they did earlier in the year. Um, but, yeah, you know, Adam, Adam Silver, you know, kind of gave, I think, his the best reaction out of all of us, which is that he was just shocked, right? Shocked that it happened uh, again. Uh, I believe the original incident was an eight-game suspension. Sounds right. And obviously the league is also investigating. I don't exactly... Do you remember what the, like, specifically Memphis did? I think he's suspended from all team activities until further notice. I believe that's what happened. Suspended from all team activities, and he had, was, um, I believe, Silver and the Grizzlies agreed that he had to go through a, um, like a like a course, like a th uh, therapy uh, yeah. or a rehab yeah. thing yeah. assignment. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there was a quote unquote therapy for him last year. I believe it lasted like four days or something. So you know, no shocker that the supposed therapy uh, didn't correct his original mistake. Right, that's not how that works. It's it's a it's it's an investment in yourself, and it, it's a time investment, right? Um, you, you know, JJ Redick, uh, you know, kind of went off on, uh, I believe it was first take, and he said, "Why are we trying to lay down the hammer on a 23 year old who didn't break a law?" Which I get. I understand that he didn't break any laws. Um, you, you know, and then Charles Barkley called everybody that takes a similar stance as Redick idiots. Um, he says those, those guys are just freaking idiots. When you're making a hundred million dollars a year to play sports, your life changes. There are certain rules and regulations you have to live by plain and simple. You can't do stupid stuff. That's the trade-off. Uh, you know, there's a whole other kind of freedom of speech debate in there as well. And I just want to say one thing is that freedom of speech does not mean you are free from the consequences of said speech, mm -hmm. right? Your actions can have consequences. And I think the most important thing to recognize here is similar to the Kyrie Irving situation is the influence that this could have on those younger kids who don't know anything, who would see one video or one statement and believe that is like the holy word, right? They're, you know, 10, 11 year olds, completely impressionable. Their idols and their favorite players on the planet are, you know, Kyrie Irving or John Moran. And Kyrie posts this movie uh, you know, this quote unquote, I'm not going to, you know, go into it too much, but, uh, anti-Semitic video. The issue is that there will be those kids who see that and then they'll take that as the true word. And then they'll go and spread that to their other friends who are impressionable. Then they'll have it. Right. And that's how hate manifests itself. And it's the same thing here, right? These 10 or 11 year old kids who look up to jaw will see this and think that that's the lifestyle they should live. 
you know, they'll ignore the consequences he's getting and believe that that's the way they should live. You know, I think that that's one of the main things the NBA is trying to limit is the negative influences that these athletes provide to the world. And I think that, in my opinion, I think that the suspension is perfectly reasonable. I think that the team activities and, you know, the investigation into it is perfectly reasonable. And I'm, I, you know, I'm a little bit, dis I'm a disappointed, right? Because John Morant's a superstar. He's one of the best young mm -hmm. talents we've seen in the league. And, you know, he keeps making mistakes and keeps choosing to do these things. He wasn't forced to pull the gun out. He did that all by himself, right? His friends yeah. just, they're just listening to music in his car. Um, you know, that's, that's what I have on the, that's what I have on it. That's my take on the situation. Okay. Um, I appreciate you emphasizing that fact before, um, about talking about the freedom of speech. How you said it's, yes, everyone is entitled in this country, at least is entitled to freedom of speech. However, like you said, that doesn't mean that we can't take what you said and have opinions on it and, you know, right. maybe be negative, right? You aren't, you aren't free from judgment. Everything you do. There's judgment, good or bad, indifferent. That's just how it is. And for what he did, for the second time, and after he went out on, on an apology tour too, it's it's definitely hurtful. It, it's definitely disappointing. I remember when he came up, I think it was 2018 or 2019. I remember him and Jaron. That was like such a fun duo. And I was like, oh man, this Memphis team is cool. And then just, I don't know, like, Fast forward today, like that Memphis team is so hateable and undesirable. And then you got guys like Ja like that off the court doing stuff like this, like just flashing guns on Instagram live for what, man? Like, like you said, like you're, you're a role, like whether you want to accept it or not, you have kids looking up to you. You have people looking up to you. And that, that comes with a certain amount of responsibility that you need to take seriously. So when you're sitting there in the passenger flashing a gun, you're in the club there sitting there in a the chair flashing a gun. I mean, that's that's not good. That's that's harmful. I remember I brought this up when this just broke, like minutes after it broke and I was talking to you. I was like, the NBA has come such a long way from where they originally were kind of perceived by the outsiders that didn't really care about the sport. They were just like, oh, it's just... Another sport with a bunch of criminals in it. Nothing more than that. They don't deserve the money they get. And now, fast forward all these years later, it's like a legitimate brotherhood. And then you just don't want to see someone like John Morant who's just makes a, a few dumb decisions just ruin that perception again. After all the decades and time that everyone spent, all the players and front offices and the league office spent making the NBA brand look so nice and just clean and positive... Just go right right back down to the drawing board because, yeah. you know, you have no self-control. Yeah, absolutely. It's sad. Yeah, and I, I think I speak for both of us when I say that this is not us following that ridiculous shut up and dribble message. Um, no, no, That no, is no, not no. it at no. all, right? This has nothing to do with our view on guns or whatever. This is, you know, us just taking the situation seriously. And, you know, I think that I hope that most people kind of see our perspective at least at least can see the perspective we have um obviously you know we don't want to we don't want to dive into the whole political and whatever that is because there is obviously that conversation we're not going to get into it right this is a yeah nba yeah, podcast but you know i i hope that people can see the harm that we see in his actions and it's unfortunate right because he really he's a superstar uh it's too bad that yeah. his mistakes keep happening but you know anyways on to some more exciting stuff some more fun stuff uh, the draft lottery.
happened this week. Uh, obviously, San Antonio landed the number one pick, which assumed is going to be Victor Wenbenyama, uh, who, you know, is one of the most interesting prospects ever, if not the most interesting, at least from a skill set perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. The Hornets follow right after at number two, and the Blazers get at three, and I think the Blazers have some very interesting conversations uh, involving this draft pick. I think we're going to dive into that a little bit. Uh, so, obviously, Spurs get one, uh, presumed Victor Wenbenyama. Uh, you know, Hornets land at two. Luke, I know you're not as big on college basketball, but if you know anything, what do you think the Hornets do with this pick? Number two? Yeah. Um, I think I think after Wemby, you... Honestly, with the way they're positioned, yeah, I don't, I don't want to start just throwing out names because I, I, like I said, I, I don't want to just start assuming things and look stupid. But I think you take the second best player, and I know that sounds kind of obvious, but based on their roster, I think they're kind of in a spot where, outside of Lamelo, obviously, no one's really set in stone, in my opinion, in that team. Right. So I think you really just take the second best player and uh, that you believe is the second best player and go with that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I somewhat agree with that. I think that it provides something really interesting because the second best player uh, hypothetically right now is Scoot Henderson, the point guard from G League Ignite. Uh, you know, his his biggest comparison has been Russell Westbrook. I think he's going to be uh, a better scorer than Westbrook, at least pure shooting-wise and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's not a great three-point shooter right now. I think he's shooting, he's shooting 27% right now on two and, a, two and a half attempts a game, which is not good. Uh, but you know that will improve I think that that's one of the things that's been shown over the past few years is that we have more and more guys developing jumpers right Lonzo Ball went from being one of the worst three-point shooters to shooting 40% in two years with the Bulls right Uh, Mm -hmm. so there's that Um, but you know the Hornets can also look to move the pick right do they want to try and pair Lamella with the superstar the only question is what team has a guy like that that they're willing to move and team that needs a guy like Scoot Henderson, uh, you know, the hot, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of teams that could do it. I can't really think of anybody right now, but, uh, you know, possibly, uh, the Knicks look at this pick, right? Uh, hmm. give LaMelo yeah. Randall to work with, you know, uh, and also, you know, the, the Hornets roster has a lot of young guys right now, you know, Mark Williams, they're big from Duke really came into his own. Love to see that. I'm a Duke guy. So love to see him getting a lot of playing time. Uh, and, you know, LaMelo's had his fair share of ankle issues already, of course. Uh, but, you know, they're a young roster. I think that I, I really like... Uh, oh, shoot. What's his name? What's the Hornets coach name? Ooh. That's a good question. Uh, I, I, yeah, Steve Clifford. Steve Clifford. I yes, am yes, very yeah. high on Steve Clifford. I really like Steve Clifford as their coach. I think that they need an, a strong, uh, you know, veteran coach influence for that roster because of how young it is. Unfortunately, they really missed on one of their last picks. James Booknight seems to be kind of a bust at this point after two years. Uh, but mm-hmm. you, you never know. You never know. He could take a huge jump in year three, right? That happens. Anyways, the Blazers sit at three. And this is kind of our next big conversation I have. Obviously, I'm from Portland. I've watched the Blazers for, you know, 18 years of my life. Uh, had to live with the organization, unfortunately. And, you know, my main question in here is, what do you think that they could do with this pick? Are they going to keep it? Are they going to move it? You know, what are the possibilities? To me, this is like, this is the ultimate last case scenario for for keeping Dame. 
if they can use that pick and sorry you say something no oh so, okay um if they can use that pick and and get a trusted veteran that dame can cone sign on that would be i mean that's that's like that's great I, I, but at the same time realistically i just don't think it's gonna happen i know that i know that um dame said i think towards the end of the year he said something along the lines of like i'm at the stage of my career where bringing in like young talent like that isn't really gonna like help it's just like not it's not with my timeline it makes sense like by the time they get to where they're supposed to be where they hit their ceilings that's not dame is already years down the road from that. that's just not it's just not realistic so honestly i think they have a really even now a much bigger decision to make because now they have a really good pick and they're kind of on the brink of losing dame like they really have to make some decisions like do we do we talk with dame and try to get a piece to fit him that he likes or do we just accept accept defeat move on from dame and draft someone that can maybe lead us to the next the next era of our team yeah absolutely i agree with you uh you know i've kind of been looking through just like trade options for the blazers and the two most interesting ones involve the wizards and the bulls and i'm just gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna read them so the first one is for demar Derozan. it's anthony simons kevin knox and kevin knox is kind of just a young guy to put in the deal right so this would hypothetically be the Bulls are done with the veteran era, right? Uh, Nikola Vucevic is gone and DeMar DeRozan is are gone. And they kind of want to go young. They want to start something new. Uh, pair another young guard in the backcourt uh, who's already solidified himself. And Anthony Simons with Zach Levine. And, you know, uh, hopefully take a big at some point in the draft with the 23rd overall pick from the Blazers. As well as two 2026 second round pick swaps with the Pelicans for DeMar. Uh, so Ant, Kevin Knox... The 23rd overall pick, two 2026 second round pick swaps with the Pelicans for DeMar DeRozan. What do you think about that? Um, I, I, I like it from the Bulls perspective more than the Blazers perspective, honestly. I'm, I'm just worried about the potential fall off of Vucevic. And I, I don't know. There's just, well, the, in this, in this specific order. scenario, Vucevic would be gone. He's not a part of this and, deal, but I am. Is he? I think he might be a free agent. Let me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I thought. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I misinterpreted. Okay, I see now. So, hmm. I personally love Demar Derozan. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for the mid range game. I just don't know how much of an impact, of a bigger impact Demar would have over Simons. Um, like obviously, obviously the just the experience is completely overwhelmingly more than Simon's. Uh, not even, not even a question. But right, I just don't think it's enough to put them where they want to be. You know what I mean? Like because the Western Conference is just it's competitive. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right, like it's not right. It's no. So um, here's here's the second part of the deal. So obviously Vucevic is a free agent this year. He's done. Right. So most likely he's actually gone. Most likely he is gone. I think that that's something that is going to happen. So the Bulls also hold Portland's 2024 first round pick as long as it lands outside of the lottery. So Chicago okay. would have some incentive to make the Blazers a playoff team. Uh, you know, uh, Zach Levine would also be an ideal candidate for Portland because of his ties to the area. But I doubt that they're going to, you know, deal the franchise guy. Uh, it's more, yeah. much more likely that DeRozan is the guy they get rid of. Uh, the other one that I was looking at was Anthony Simons, Yusuf Nurkic 
the number three pick, uh, and, or sorry, yeah, and the number three pick for DeMar DeRozan and Alex Caruso, I don't like that deal very much. I mean, I love it in terms of for the Blazers getting rid of Yusuf Nurkic's contract, but I don't think that DeMar and Alex are a good enough return for Anthony in the number three pick. I don't think that's uh, enough, uh, at least in this draft, because I think that there are five or six guys who could be generational talents in this draft. I mean, mm -hmm. this draft class is loaded. Uh, so in this one, it, so, you know, second one, uh, DeMar DeRozan, Alex Caruso, Ant, Yusuf, and the number three pick. Obviously, the Bulls, you know, have incentive to make the deal. And then the Bulls get a point guard out of Ant that they've needed for a long time, which is kind of debatable because Anthony really is a score first guy. Uh, he's not a oh, facilitator. Yeah. He's, you know, kind of like Michael Porter Jr., where he's kind of a black hole when he touches the ball. Um, yep. And then, you know, uh, Nurkic can fill in if things don't work out with Vucevic this offseason. Uh, and then, obviously, the number three pick also helps Chicago act, uh, accumulate more young talent if it needs to eventually compete as Levine enters his prime years. Uh, Chicago can also easily deal Nurkic again if it wants to work something out with Vucevic. Uh, you know, the Bulls do need a reset uh, for a path to contention. They really do. Uh, right now, with the roster they have, it's not going to work. This was the last year uh, that they mm -hmm. had any chance of, I think, making the playoffs. And they didn't get it done this year. They're not going to get it done in the future. Um, so the next trade I was looking at was with the Wizards. And it's Anthony Simons, Yusuf Nurkic, and the number three pick for Bradley Beal and Corey Kispert. So the Blazers have future draft assets to send out in this deal if needed. Although they'll want to avoid that scenario, obviously, because they are giving up the number three pick. Bill gives, uh, you know, Bradley Beal gives Lillard an elite backcourt threat as a duo, uh, you know, better than CJ McCollum was, uh, while Kispert offers a really versatile 3 and D wing player. Uh, you know, they're missing defense. They traded away Josh Hart, right? Their best defender, one of the best rebounders, one of the best bench guys in the league now. Uh, and, you know, he'll have some local support from his Gonzaga days. Obviously, Corey Kispert was a stud at Gonzaga. Uh, and it won't necessarily put the Blazers over the top, but it certainly moves the needle in terms of playoff contention. And it obviously gets Portland out of Yusuf Nurkic's deal. The Wizards uh, get a really, you know, exciting young player in Simons along with the number three pick. Uh, you know, and Simons, uh, and this is in the scenario where they keep Porzingis and Kuzma and then Simons comes in and then they also get the number three pick, right? Uh, you know, Nurkic's contract isn't great, but he's a decent option on a rebuilding team for a big man. Uh, you know, to pair alongside uh, Chris Stapps, except coming off the bench, most likely. And, you know, Washington has been stuck uh, for a really long time in a, a crappy situation. And this would be a really good way to reset things. Uh, you know, it'll also open up playing time for the team's younger players who haven't been able to develop because they've been playing behind veterans. Uh, what do you think about this deal? This one, I think, is probably my, my favorite one of the three. Like you said... Dennis has been in this in this just lackluster how many years now at this point. Um and I think it I think it is time to just move in a different direction. And that gives them a lot of that gives them a lot of places to go, a lot of a lot of things to try out. Um and, and for the other side of the trade for Portland, I'm a huge I, I used to love Nurk. I still do love Nurkic, but obviously physically, like his body, it's not it just doesn't hold up like it used to anymore. I remember when he snapped his leg against the Nets; that was disgusting. Um, yeah. If you can get his, if you can get his cap 
off your team like that, that's great. Because that gives you that gives you more money to spend on other things. So based off that trade, I was thinking what that what the lineup would be. It'd be most likely like Lillard, Beal, Kispert, insert a forward, insert a big. I would love to see them if if it were financially possible to have you know the backcourt like Damon Beal, Kispert, like you said. I'd love for them, because I believe it's a free agent now. I'd love for them to go back and get Jeremy Grant and then get a nice serviceable big. Not anything crazy, just just a nice like fundamental big, you know? And I think that's a really good, like you said, that's a really good competitive starting five that that will actually give them a chance to, you know, get in the playoffs and compete and do something. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, the Blazers really sat on Dame's prime years uh, for a while there to ride them to the playoffs. I think those years are officially done after this, seeing what happened this year. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think my favorite trade is the Mar DeRozan deal where they also keep the third pick. And it's, you know, again, Anthony Simons, Kevin Knox, the 23rd overall pick and two 2026 second round pick swaps with the Pelicans for just Mar DeRozan. I think that's the best deal out of the three for me personally, uh, just because you get DeMar, you get rid of Kevin Knox, who's just eating, you know, seven, eight million dollars in contract. And obviously you give up the 2020, the, the 23rd pick, but you keep the third pick. And I think that's the big one, right? You add DeMar and then you also get the third pick. Um, and then, you know, you can also make more moves. I think that they need to figure out a way to get rid of Nurkic. Um, and if they can get rid of Nurkic for more, you know, a, a, a pick somewhere in the 20s for a team that needs a big, I think that's a valuable choice. I think that's a viable option. And obviously the other options will have a full episode dedicated to our mock drafts. But the other option is to just draft the best player on the board that they think fits alongside with Dame. Obviously, True. Nurkic has had, had his fair share of injuries, but, you know, Victor will almost 100% not be on the board in the third pick. So the next best option would be to add, you know, size, spacing with a good wing player. So, you know, the three guys that come to mind are obviously Scoot Henderson as the first case. He's only 6'2", but, you know, he's the second best player in the draft. Uh, Brendan Miller from Alabama, uh, you know, average 18 and 8 while shooting about 40% from three. He's 6'9 with a 6'11 wingspan. So obviously, you know, his player comps are those of like Paul George, Danny Granger, uh, you know, and he averages a block a game. So he's suited to guard almost all five spots. Uh, and then obviously, uh, you know, one of the Thompson twins is obviously intriguing. Uh, a sore Thompson specifically, 6'7", 6'10", wingspan. Uh, and he's the most athletic player in the draft. Uh, he doesn't shoot great from three, but he shot 60% from the field on a lot of inside scoring and mid-range jumpers. And, you know, he's the best defender in the draft as well, outside of Jerry Ace Walker, who would be another option for Portland to look at, right? He gives them some size, some spacing. I know you're not as big into college, but uh, mm -hmm. if, they take a, if they take a player and they get that deal done with the Bulls for Ants and the 23rd pick, Kevin Knox, you know, the two 2026 20, seconds, that is a lot to get in one offseason for them. And if they retain Jeremy Grant, they find a way to get rid of Nurkic and get another, you know, serviceable big. That's big for them. That's a big step in the right direction. You know, DeMar still has probably three or four good years left. Um, you know, he'll always be able to, he'll be one of those guys who can score the ball until he's 50. But oh, yeah. the defense is the uh, question mark. And obviously, you know, with Asor Thompson or Jarese Walker, it provides elite defense. They finished 23rd defensively this last season that's horrible 
Uh, they have they let teams score 117 points per game. So, you know, anything they can get on defense helps. And if they can get somebody who is going to be a elite defender, like all NBA level defender, right off the draft board, I think that's a very like, uh, viable option for them. If you feel the same way. No, no, I, I think that's I think that's a, a great way to look at it. I think if they are able, are able to pull that off, that's that's about as good as it can be for an offseason for him. I 100% agree with your take there. Uh, and then the last thing to close out this uh, this episode, James Harden declined his $35.6 million player option to come back to the Sixers and is becoming a free agent. Uh, you know, rumor has it that he has specific interest in a KD reunion, of course, right? He wants to play with KD without Kyrie involved, uh, like everybody else. And, you know, obviously outside of the KD, he wants to be either have a reunion with Houston or go straight to a finals contending team. And I'm sure things would change hypothetically if Dame somehow landed in Philly. I'm sure he'd want to go back, right? Dame, Harden, and Embiid, that'd be fun to watch. But, uh, you know, what do you think about this choice? Does it make sense? I am totally on board with him declining this option. I, I've been saying it for the last few years. I just, I've never believed in Philly. Obviously, they're always a great team, but they just, they've always been, just seemingly have missed something that just takes them to that next level. So I completely agree leaving there potentially and declining this option and seeing what's out there in terms of options. Um, I think something that, I haven't really seen a lot of people talk about that I think is worth mentioning is he declined that $35.6 million uh, option. That, that to me, is an indicator that he doesn't care about... He's at a point of his career where the money, the dollar sign, doesn't mean as much as the actual situation, which is huge because you think about the cap space over there in Phoenix. Um, if he doesn't care about money, he could take a much more contract yeah. and they can feasibly add him onto that roster. And that that's something that's, something that's a legitimate possibility so and and that that's not even just with phoenix that's with you know maybe other teams if they come to the mix yeah. like other contenders he doesn't seem like he's requesting that much money so i think they a lot of contenders could aff like afford yeah. to get yeah, him on we'll, yeah we'll see about the oh. money you know obviously it's 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 straight up 35.6 uh if he was to accept it with incentives from the sixers it'd be 47 million dollars which is yeah it's like ridiculous yeah, insane. That's insane. I mean, I cannot believe that is that he'd get paid that much money. Um, and then you know his max salary as a free agent would actually be lower than if he opted in. It'd be forty six million, so only you know a million dollars less. But uh, you know the 76ers reportedly won't refuse will refuse to offer him a max contract, which you know makes sense. Um, yeah, you know Bradley Beal just opted out as well, but he seems set on uh you know re-signing with uh washington which you know makes sense but uh oh wait sorry no no not bradley beal sorry it was somebody else my fault uh anyways anyways okay. um you know uh it, it, the the opting in and signing an extension never really made sense for him so you know uh what the Sixers do with this, I don't know. They're probably not going to offer him the max because he just took less money this past year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think you're right. But it, it puts it puts them in an interesting spot because how do they rebuild around Harden and Maxi? right? Their roster obviously needs a retool. Uh, you lose Harden, that brings 
George Niang into the starting lineup? Like who? Like like who? Like what do they do? What what do they do? They've really screwed the pooch these last few years. Um, unfortunately, and it all rooted from Ben Simmons, obviously, who now you guys have to deal with over in Brooklyn. But um, oh yeah, great times. Yeah, great times for you guys. But yeah, yep. um, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see where he lands because you know somebody's gonna pay him most likely, uh, or he's gonna take a huge pay cut and go to a team that wants him and he wants to win a ring like Phoenix, you know. Yeah. I could see it going both ways. I could see him going back to Houston. I could see him joining a contending team for a lot less money. But the only issue and is for a contending team, do they have to get rid of more depth to land him? Because how much how much of a pay cut would he be willing to take, you know? Yeah, it is true. How how far is he willing yeah. to go? I'm thinking with Phoenix, does I be, I could be wrong, but doesn't Chris Paul come off the books or is he still is he still signed next season? Um, let's I mean, uh, quick quick thing to find out Chris I'm just, I'm just trying to think about like future like well not, not just cap but even yeah, just like roster yeah, fit yeah you know? so he be... is signed uh through 2024 he's a free agent in 2025 and he's getting Ooh. 30 million dollars a year <laughs> oh that's bad yeah. they're so they're gonna have to move I don't know who's gonna take him but they'd have to move Paul in that in a yeah. potential trade like that you know what's crazy he's at 30 million dollars Chris Paul will be the 42nd best paid player in the NBA <laughs> That's crazy. That is ridiculous. Like ten years ago, he'd be like top ten yeah, easily. That's yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> That's it's, so it's crazy. Unbelievable. Um, it's it's crazy to think that he's making that in this stage of his career too. Good for him. Yeah. So you know, last 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 little thing here is kind of just you know, going over the other free agents that are off the books this year. Um, obviously, James Harden would be at number one. You know, Kyrie Irving in Dallas. Uh, Fred VanVleet is also a big one in Toronto. Chris Stapps for Washington, most likely going to accept the player option, I'd think. Uh, Chris Middleton also has a player option. I don't know what he'll do. You know, he averaged 15 and 4 this year. Uh, he, he got paid 37 mil this year. Uh, Nikola Vucevic. Uh, and then Draymond. You know, do the Warriors keep Draymond? You know, a lot of stuff to talk about. We'll continue to talk about it, obviously, as the playoffs end and as we hear more stuff, get more news. But, you know, guys, I think that's going to do it for episode two of Clover and Nets. Yeah, I think that's, that's about all I got. So uh, take care, everyone. Have a good one. Take care, guys. Uh, we'll see you in a few days. All right.